Jim Laritz, what is going on, my brother? I appreciate you doing this. Oh, no problem. Good to be on. My worlds are colliding. I get to talk Yankee baseball and Kentucky. Uh, what's better than this? That's true. That is true. What's cooler, seeing yourself on your first baseball card or seeing yourself in a video game? Ooh, that's a tough one. I think I think it's the baseball card. I think it's every little kid's dream. Is I remember my dad saying to me, "Jimmy, you can go to college and play basketball, and you'll be good, but you'll never have a you'll never have a card." <laughs> and I said, "Then I want to play baseball because I want a baseball card." Uh, two-time World Series champion, author, father, podcaster, radio host, involved in a ton of charities. Am I missing anything? Uh, baseball agent, which is my newest <laughs> one. Oh, nice! Congratulations. Yes, I'm getting my I'm taking my test in September, but I've become part of a another group called North Star uh, Sports Agency, and uh, I'm going to start recruiting players come October. That's exciting. Yes, I'm. Uh, you know what? I'm glad to be back in baseball. Yes, of course. Any way to get back in the game, right? Exactly. Exactly. Ohio guy, Cincinnati and Cleveland. I know you're a big sports guy overall. What are your teams, or who were your teams growing up in the major sports? Well, you know, I grew up in Cincinnati, and Tommy Brenneman was one of my closest friends. And uh, we used to go to spring training with the Reds from 73, 74, 75, you know, the big years. Uh, and once in a while, we got to be chosen as bat boys. And um, I will always remember those memories. And I think really, honestly, the thing that made my whole career, and I told him this when I met him in a clubhouse in 2006 at a Hall of Fame game, but I was, I, Pete Rose was always my idol. Okay. And I wanted to be like Pete. And we were down at spring training one time, and they needed to pick two kids to do a hitting segment with Pete Rose and a catching segment with Johnny Bench. And they, had, they were picking between me and Tommy. And I was praying to God that Pete would pick me to do the hitting. And he picked Tommy. So I got stuck with Johnny Bench <laughs> doing the catching. You know, and at that time, that's how I felt. Like I got stuck with Johnny Bench. Wow. We do this whole, we do this segment. He teaches me how to throw the ball to the bases, block balls, all these different things. And we get done with the segment, and he goes, hey, kid, come here. He said, are you a catcher? I said, no, Mr. Bench. I want to be like Pete. And he said, well, let me just tell you this much. My dad told me catching was the quickest way to the big leagues, and that's why I'm here. you got some pretty mad skills as a catcher. You should think about it. Wow. And again, I'm, I'm 14 years old. I'm not. I'm still thinking I'm going to play college basketball, so I, I think he could tell that I wasn't buying into it. And he said, "Well, maybe this will help you." And he took off his catcher's mitt and he signed it and he handed it to me. Whoa! I went home that night and I said, "I am going to become a catcher to my dad," and that's exactly the only reason I got to the big leagues or got drafted. I never got drafted. The only reason I got signed is because the scout saw me catching in a collegiate league. And everybody thought I couldn't catch because I broke my foot mm -hmm. out of high school four days before the draft, and I didn't catch my first two years of college. But the reason I didn't catch at Kentucky is because the coach's nephew was the, the starting catcher. And so when the scout came up to me in, in Wichita, Kansas, in the Jayhawk League and said, hey, what are you doing catching? I said, I can catch. I just wasn't allowed to at Kentucky. He said, we, want, we just watched you catch three days in a row. We're going to sign you. And I ended up signing with the New York Yankees. Wow. Dad, did you ever tell Johnny that story that you had some kind of – he had an influence? So in 2006, we went to Hall of Fame game. I'm in the same locker room, and I walk up to him, and I said, hey, Johnny, I never got an opportunity to thank you for my career. And he goes, 
what are you talking about? He goes, oh, that's right, you're from Cincinnati. I go, no, it has nothing to do with that. I go, 14-year-old kid doing a TV segment with Wild World of Sports with you and Pete Rose. And I got I was the young kid that got to catch, do the catching segment with you. You gave me your glove. I became a catcher that day. The only reason I got signed is because I went back to catching and was because of you. And that's the only reason I had a big league wow. career. I just want to thank you for that. And he goes, you're kidding me. I said, he goes, I remember that kid because I didn't know it was you. He said, but can I tell that story? Because that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, so that was my Johnny Bench story. That is sick. Now, you mentioned basketball twice. Obviously, you went to Kentucky, so Kentucky's a basketball school. Come out of high school, you were a good basketball player. You, did you have any offers? Yeah, I had Indiana State. I had some oh. yeah, some decent schools. Uh, I was a point guard, averaging 21, 19 points a game my junior and senior year without the three-point line. You know, had we had the three-point line, it would have been even more. But, <laughs> um, but I could dribble. I could run an offense. And I was I was your prototypical Phil Ford type of point guard back in those days, and um, yeah. So, but my dad grabbed me after my junior year and he said, "Hey, Jimmy, here's the situation: you can go to college, be a good college basketball player. Mm-hmm. You may not start, but you may. But you can have four years of college, paid for, and a scholarship. Or if you want a baseball card, you got a chance to be a professional baseball player." I said, "I think I'll take the baseball route." And uh, Wind up being a pretty good decision. I think so. And you mentioned, you know, breaking your foot. Because you were supposed to be, I read it on the internet, Jim, so you know it's uh, you know it's true. But you broke your foot, yeah. and you were uh, projected top five, maybe top overall draft pick coming out of high school. How did you break your foot? And yeah. how do you deal with that mentally as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old kid? Yeah, as, you know, coming out of Cincinnati in 1982, Barry Larkin was the number one player coming out of Cincinnati. A guy named, a guy named Craig Mills from Hamilton High School was number two, and I was number three um, as far as what was supposed to be drafted uh, in the draft. And four days before I went out and played tennis, fractured the side of my foot. Now, the irony of this whole story is the team that called my dad when I was out playing tennis and asked my dad if I would sign or I wanted to go to college. My dad said, let me talk to him when he comes home, and I'll, talk, I'll call you back. These two scouts, when my dad called him back and said, hey, Unfortunately, Jimmy just came home. He, he has a fractured foot, you know, but he's only going to be out two or three weeks, you know, if you want to still take him. Mm-hmm. They said, you know what, we're going to pass on him, but we're going to come back and watch him in five or six weeks. Okay. They came back and they watched me. Now, I couldn't squat, so I couldn't catch, but I could play third base in the outfield just like I did during my whole career, and I could hit. And the bottom line was they looked at my dad and said, hey, we want to sign him. And my dad said, give him 10 grand. Okay. Now, at the time, the number one draft picks got about two hundred grand at that time. Mm-hmm. So ten grand wasn't much, but it was a, you know it was it was a good amount. Sure. And the scout said to my dad, "Unfortunately, they only okayed us for five thousand dollars." My dad said, "Screw that! He's going to college." So I went to junior college for two years, didn't get drafted. Mm-hmm. Went to Kentucky for another year, didn't get drafted, but I wasn't catching. I was only playing third base in the outfield. Go out to Hayes, Kansas, the collegiate league, and I told the coach I want to start catching. I catch a couple games, and this Yankee scout comes up to me and says exactly what I told you. What are you doing catching? I can catch. Just wasn't allowed to in Kentucky. They signed me. Now, the irony of the whole story 
is that those two scouts that were supposed to sign me out of Cincinnati, uh-huh. they were Cincinnati area scouts. You might know one. His name is Hep Cronin. His son is Mick Cronin at UCLA, mm-hmm. basketball wow. coach. Wow. All right. His father was the one that was supposed to sign me, worked, but I don't give it away yet. Okay. So in 1996, he's sitting in John Sherlock's box no. with John Sherlock when I hit this home run. And he says, do not tell Sherlock for $5,000 we could have changed. Oh, my God. Baseball stuff. history. Holy shit. I would have never, never have been a Yankee. Yeah. That's like giving you chills, doesn't it? Well, it's, it's crazy because after that point, the Atlanta Braves never got back until two years ago. Mm-hmm. And we went on to win five World Series. It's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. I, I want to rewind a little bit. Uh, going down to college down in Georgia, how'd you end up at Kentucky? I know Cincinnati, Kentucky's close, but how'd that happen? So what happened was out of high school, University of Kentucky was, was interested in signing me, and I made a verbal commitment. And I told Keith Madison, who was the head coach at UK, if I don't get drafted, then I'm going to come to UK. And I ended up breaking my foot and all that stuff happened. And I called him up and said, Coach, if I come to a four-year school, I can't get signed till after three years. I almost got drafted, even with a broken foot. I'm going to go to junior college. Do you, you know, do you have any suggestions? And he actually was the one that helped me get into middle oh, Georgia junior college. Okay. And he said to me, make me a promise, if you don't get signed after your sophomore year, that you will come back to the University of Kentucky, and I will give you a full ride. And so after I didn't get dra- drafted the first two years, I went to visit Kentucky, and me and Keith Madison signed the contract, and I ended up going to Kentucky for my junior that, year. That's sick. And what year were you at Kentucky? What years? 1985. And then I signed between 85 and 86. I went back for the first half of my senior year in the fall of 86, and then I never finished because spring training started. 85, 86. Was that Kenny Skywalker? Was he there with the basketball team? Kenny Skywalker and I were in a theater class together, and he invited me one day down to play to practice. And I looked up at him at six foot seven and said, "Dude, I made the right choice. I don't even want to try to practice." <laughs> you don't get drafted out of Kentucky. You go to Kansas. How does that happen? I know the Yankees, you know, signed you. How do, is it a phone call? Is it a letter? And it's not an internet way they can text you. How'd that happen? Because that must have been wild. That was my roommate. My roommate at Kentucky, a guy named Rusty Schuler. he was from Hayes, Kansas, and they had this Hayes Larks team out there. And he said, dude, screw the scouts. You know what? Just come out. Let's have fun this summer, you know, before our senior year. Let's just party and have a great time. And I said, you know what? That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> so I went out to Hayes, Kansas. I met the, the, the head coach, Frank Leo, and I said, here's my situation. I felt like I should have been drafted. I wasn't. I want to come here. I want to catch a little bit, but I really want to. I really want to work extra hard because I want to get signed my senior year. And he said, "Jimmy, I'll help you." So I would say after practice, work on stealing bases. Back then, I had a little speed, um, <laughs> and I would do all these things. And he looked at me after about three weeks. He said, "I don't understand why you weren't drafted." Wow. He said, "You were heads and tails above talent-wise." above any of these kids that are here. He said, don't give up. And sure enough, we went to play in the Wichita, the NBC tournament 
And that's when the scout from Kentucky, I mean, from the Yankees saw me and I ended up signing with the Yankees. Did he, but how did, did he call you on the phone? Did you sign there in person? So he came up to me after a game. Yeah. And he said, what are you doing catching? And I said, well, I've been able to catch. I just wasn't allowed to because the coach of Kentucky's kid, his nephew was the starting catcher. And he said, well, we were told you couldn't catch. I said, well, you just watched me. And he said, yeah, I want to sign you. He said, what would it take? I said, well, let me call my dad. I called my dad. I said, dad, get on a plane from Cincinnati. I need you in Kansas. We're signing with the New York Yankees this week. He said, hold on, Jimmy. I'll fly out tomorrow. And he got he flew out the next day. By the next day, the Kansas City Royals had come up to me and said, hey, Ooh. we understand that you're getting ready to sign. We'd like to talk to you, too. So I, when my dad landed, I said, Dad, we got two offers. We got Kansas City and we have the Yankees. And we kind of just started studying both teams. My dad goes, Jimmy, the Kansas City Royals just won the World Series. They've got maybe the start of a dynasty here. Their minor league is ranked like fifth, you know, in all of minor leagues. The Yankees suck in the major leagues. They have no minor league system because they traded all away for these free agents. I think you should go with the Yankees. Wow. But here's what sealed the deal. My mom called and said, what did you decide? I said, well, right now they're both offering $8,000. But the New York Yankees are willing to pay for me to go back to college if I want to finish my degree, if I don't make it. And my mom said, then there's no other choice. You're wow. going to Kentucky. Wow. And that's how, I up, that's how I wound up at Kentucky. In 86, you walk into spring training. There's uh, Pinellas managing, Donnie Baseball, Randolph, Griffey, Ricky Henderson. You're a little more experienced because you weren't coming out of high school. But do you go around like introducing yourself? Like, because I'm always weird of that dynamic. You're not like a, you know, a bonus baby. Hi, how, how are you? I'm Jim. Like, how do you do that? Well, what happens is when you first get signed, you go to minor league camp. So you don't even see the big leaguers. Like, it, it's not like it is now yeah. where the training facility is surrounded by 15 fields. You know, and two teams share the same <laughs> complex and all these. We as minor leaguers, we had our own complex in Dania, Florida, not anywhere near Fort Lauderdale. Okay. <laughs> but we we never even saw these big league guys. Um, so my my first greeting was from Buck Showalter, who okay. was the minor he was the minor league coordinator in nineteen eighty-six. And I walk into the locker room. And he, you know, they start calling out your name and they have your card. And he said, Lairitz, James. And I raised my hand. He goes, come here. He, I walk up and he said, uh, you know, six foot, 185, but it doesn't have a position here. It says hitter. He said, what position are you playing? I said, well, I, I really like to go back to catching. You know, I've been playing third base in the outfield, but catching, I think, is my strong point. He said, okay, you're a catcher. And from that point on, you know, four years later, I went to my first major league camp in 1990, didn't make the club, mm -hmm. but then there was a reason I didn't make the club because Bucky Dent was my single A manager. And I always tell kids when I give my speeches, be careful the people that you treat on your way up because you may run into them in the future <laughs> on your way up. And sure enough, I never, I didn't know who Bucky Dent was. I thought he was a 220 lifetime hitter trying to tell me how to hit. And I was like, you know, I, 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 I didn't, I, 
it was a mistake I made. One of my first mistakes I made. I because they were trying to make me a switch hitter at the time. Oh wow, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, Roy White suggested it to me when he saw me taking batting practice right and left, which I always did because of Pete Rose. That's a whole other 20-minute story. Um, but Pete, Pete had always told me to switch hit even in the batting cages. And I was doing it in spring training my first year, and Roy White saw me and he goes, you need to – there's no switch hitting catchers in the, in the Yankee organization. This could be a quick ticket to the big leagues for you. Mm-hmm. So I tried it. When I got set to Bucky Denton single A, I was struggling. And – I was 10 for 34. I was 10 for 24 right-handed, 0 for 10 left-handed with 10 strikeouts. (laughs) And I said, I walked into Bucky Dad's office and said, I don't want to switch hit anymore. And he said, well, who are you to tell me what to do? You're here because you can switch hit because we have a number one pick, Mitch Leiden, who is our number one catcher, and he hits from the right side. If you don't want to switch hit, kid, I'll ship you out of here. And he looked at me and he's like, you know, I think he thought I'd get scared. And I go, okay, so ship me out then. He goes, what? <laughs> I go, ship me out. I said, I'm not hitting left-handed anymore. I, I know I can hit right-handed just as well. And he says, well, if you don't switch hit, you're gone. I said, well, I guess I'm gone. And there was a few explicitives. Yes. He, he told me, you're never going to make it, kid. You have the wrong attitude. You have no idea who I am. And I went, yeah, you're a 220 lifetime hitter. (laughs) Again, I plead ignorance. I didn't know. I didn't grow up with the New York Yankees. I grew up with the Cincinnati Reds. All I knew about the New York Yankees is we swept them in the World Series. They weren't good enough to beat us. So anyway, big mistake because that was 1986. Mm -hmm. Now, my first big league camp, I go to camp after, after leading the league and hitting in two different leagues. Yes. In the minor leagues. I go to my first big league camp. I hit 357. I hit the game-winning home run in the last day. I got my suitcases packed. I'm down to 28 players going to, to New York. All right, so only two people have to get cut. All right. I hit the game-winning home run in the Governor's Cup game against the Mets. Uh-huh. I walk in, and all of a sudden, Champ Summers comes up. He goes, hey, Bucky, Bucky needs to see you in the office. And I walk into the office and I go, hey, what's up, Buck? He said, uh, just want to let you know that, you know, you had a great camp, but we're going to send you back down to AAA. We might have learned to play third base again because right now we have a big hole at third base. But just don't forget about single A. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so here's the irony of the greatness of everything. So I don't make the club. Mm-hmm. I go down to AAA. I'm hitting 290. Bucky Dent is failing as a manager. He gets fired. The next day, Mike Blowers makes five errors, third base. And George Steinbrenner says to George Bradley, who's our minor league coordinator, he's sitting with him in Detroit and going, we have nothing better than this in the minor leagues. And George Bradley says, we got this layers kid. He said, I want him up here tomorrow. And I, I get called up the next day to the big leagues, and I'm in New York. That is sick. Those are incredible stories you have. Yeah. You met, you mentioned winning, winning a batting title in uh, the minors. You had a great minor league career. You played with Deion Sanders, though, didn't you? Because I know you played with Hall of Famers already. Do you have any good Deion – one good Neon Deion story? Oh, I, I got two. Okay, okay. The first one's pretty quick. The first one is the very first time I ever seen him. 
Now we all know prime time. I'm, I'm a big football guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I even I was living in Fort Lauderdale, so Florida State. I watched him play there, so I, I knew all about his football escapades. But he gets sent to us in Double A in Albany, New York. He comes up his first at bat. He hits a two hopper off the right field wall, and I look up, and this son of a bitch is standing on third base. <laughs> I'm telling you, we watched him run from second to third, or from first to second. And when he knew he had a triple, he hit that other gear that he did when he was in the football field. And I have never seen a faster human being in my life wow. go from first to third <laughs> than this guy. And I was like, holy crap, this guy can do any kind of hitting. He could be a good major league ball player. And sure wow. enough, he ended up, he's one of the few players who played above average mm -hmm. in baseball. And was a superstar yeah. in football. Wow. And, and what's, your, what's your other one? What's your other Dion one? Well, the other one is, is this I, the, the was what I love about primetime. Anybody, Dion and I got to be friends off the field. Okay. And he was one of the guys I could talk to about God and talk to about, you know, he was very down to earth, very much about his family at the time. But the, the funny thing was, whenever we would leave our privacy of just our conversations and we would walk out into the public, he become prime time. <laughs> and it was prime. And it was prime this and prime that and prime this. And he reminded me of Ricky Anderson speaking yeah. in the third character. But but it was such a but it was such a great persona. Mm -hmm. And I loved him to death. And I like I said, now a lot of people see him with the way he preaches and the way he was doing that back then, but more in a private matter than a public matter. That's who he really was. And this persona of Prime time was just his act, but he was wow. so good at it. He was so good at it. And uh, no, I really enjoyed my time playing with Dion. 1990, you get the call to the show. Where'd you live in New York when you were up here? So I had an agent that was from New York City. And he said to me, when I got caught up, you're going to live in the city. Okay. He said, you don't know how long you're going to be a Yankee. And this is one of the greatest cities in the world. Then you need to enjoy it as long as you can. And so I started living in New York City um, in 1991, okay. 1991. I was like, you know what? Maybe I have a dog, a wife. Maybe I should be outside the city. I went to go try to live up in, uh, in Hackensack, New Jersey. Okay. And I hated it. And so within three months, I was back in New York City. And the rest of my career, uh, up until 1999, I stayed in Manhattan. Just all over Manhattan? Any specific locations you enjoyed? or 64th and 2nd. Oh, great location. Right above Promola Restaurant. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was – Promola was – I would order food from Promola nonstop to my, to my apartment right <laughs> above. But, yeah, so I was always a city guy. And even when I retired, uh, working for ESPN for those three or four years, I lived right on 58th and 2nd. So oh, always great. an upper east side guy. First game in Baltimore, you pinch hit. Talking about welcome to the big league moment, Cal Ripken's playing against you. Do you remember who your first hit was against? Yeah, so it was my very first call-up. We, we, Alan Mills and I got called up together, and we had just finished a doubleheader in Toledo, Ohio, against the Mud Ends. And Rick Downs called us into the office at 1.30 in the morning and said, <clears throat> you, I've never done this before, but you two are going to the big leagues. So Alan and I got in the car. We drove from Toledo back to Columbus, and we got on a plane in Columbus, and we headed to Baltimore. 
Now, we did not get to make batting practice. So we showed up at the ballpark about 5 o'clock, got to our lockers, you know, no BP, no nothing. We're sitting around, and, you know, we're taking it all in. And I, I remember sitting on the bench right around the fourth or fifth inning, and Buck Showalter was one of the coaches. Stump Merrill was the manager. And Buck comes up to me, and he goes, hey, you better get loose because you never know. Stump likes to use guys right away when they first get here. You know, he may use you to pinch hit or something. So I went down to the locker room, got my bat, got my bat and gloves, started stretching, and I'm watching the game on TV in the locker room. And we're losing two to one in the eighth inning. And I'm going, oh, I'm not going to get up. And then sure enough, they go up and they uh, they get Greg, Greg, uh, Greg Olson up to start warming up. And I'm watching this, and he's a right-hander. So I, they say, oh, Greg Olson's up in the bullpen. He's 13 for 13 in saves this season. He's the greatest closer of Baltimore Orioles I've ever had over the last two years. So I'm looking at myself going, I'm not going to pitch hit against a right-hander. Of course no not. Way. Yeah. You know? So I go back down to the dugout, and you know we get, to, we get two outs. Steve Sachs is batting. Wayne Tolleson is on deck. And all of a sudden, Stump says, Larix, get a bat. And he go, I go, okay. So I go up on deck. Steve Sachs is getting pitched to. He gets on base. Now I come up. And I, again, have no idea. I haven't seen a scouting report. I got no idea what this guy's got. So I go up to bat. First pitch is a 55-foot breaking ball in the dirt. And I swing at it. It goes to the backstop. Steve Sachs goes to second base. Now, remember, we're down two to one. Mm -hmm. The next pitch, he throws me another curveball. I swing at it again, 57 feet, right? Catcher blocks it. Then he throws a fastball up and away. It's just a waste of pitch. Then he comes back with another curveball, and I hit a line drive down the first baseline, just fairly foul. And I was like, okay, maybe I got something here. He comes back with another curveball. He hangs it. And I get a base hit between short and third, tie the game up two to two. All right. Randy Milligan's playing first base. I get the ball. You know, he tells me, Congratulations, kid. I say, Yeah, thanks, Randy. You know, I get the ball. We go out, we, we, we end up staying tied two to two. We go out the next inning for defense. I'm playing third base. Okay. They load the bases with one out, and Randy Milligan hits a, a, a Diving, I have a diving play at third base. But now infield was in, so I'm not even with the bag. I'm in front of the bag. So, so I don't go to the bag. I try to make a throw home to get the force, and I one-hop Matt Noakes, and he misses it, and we end up losing the game. So kind of the best of both worlds my first day in the big leagues. Do you remember who your first hit was? Because, of course, Jim Larich has a flair for the dramatics at Yankee Stadium. So yeah, it was a pinch hit. I just looked. I just looked this yeah. up like ten minutes ago. I'm like, this is sick. Yep, yeah, it was a pinch hit. It was my very first game back at Yankee Stadium. Here's and this continues to a great story. So I get I come up to bat, pinch hit against Roger Clemens in Yankee Stadium. My first time. We're playing the Red Sox, right? I've already had an unbelievable day because it's my first time in Yankee Stadium. And when I came in that day, all right. I walk in, I walked right, my, my agents that take the four train, mm -hmm. come in the back entrance, and I'm like, why? And he goes, just trust me. So I took the four train from the hotel, I come in the back entrance, 
and you walk right into Monument Park. And here's all the statues, all the retired numbers. And, you know, I, I get goosebumps right now telling the story. And I walk in and I see that. Then I walk to the mound and I'm looking around going, you know, back then, today I would have had a selfie on the mound and sent it to my dad and said, look, dad. But we didn't have those back then. So I walked into the locker room and I see my lockers next to Don Madden. Wow. I mean, this is like heaven, right? Holy. I go back and get on the clubhouse phone. I call my dad up. Now, my dad was a cross between Woody Hayes and Bobby Knight. <laughs> never satisfied. Never. If you have one goal, set a new one. You know, he was just never let you stop to, to enjoy a moment. It was always, what's the next moment? So I call him up and I said, hey, dad, guess what? I'm here. He's like, son, I'm proud of you. But what are you going to do to stay there? <laughs> so, you know, thanks, dad. Right. So then I go back and sit by my locker and I'm sitting down and all of a sudden Don Mattingly comes over and he sits down next to me and he goes, hey, kid, pretty good start to your career. He goes, because I had three hits the first three games. Uh -huh. And he said, pretty good start. He goes, hey, listen, let me just tell you one thing. The reason you're next to me is if you don't ask questions, you won't be here very long. And you can ask me anything you want. It had such an impact on me about exactly what my dad had just said about no, don't be satisfied with just getting there. Wow. You need to stay here. And then all of a sudden, all that happens. And now, oh, Rich, you're pinch hitting against Roger Clemens in your first at bat at Yankee Stadium. Unbelievable, right? So I go up to bat. Again, I hit a slider for a base hit. I, you know, I, 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 I'm like, I, can I? I was waving, can I get that ball? Yeah. <laughs> Think you already have your first hit? I go, no, this is my first Yankee Stadium hit. So I get, I get the ball. And the, the other story that I don't have time to tell, but I had met Mr. Steinbrenner in, at the University of Florida four years prior okay. at, a, at, a, at a basketball game. And I went down to meet him because the other guys on my team that were also Yankees in the minor leagues were afraid to say hello to him. And I did. And when I met him, he said, because I had a Yankee jersey on and a Yankee top, because you know we were at the University of Florida, we were kind of the cool guys. And he looked at me, he goes, you're a Yankee fan? I said, no, Mr. Steinbrenner, you signed my paycheck. What? He goes, what? I go, yeah, I'm one of your minor leaguers. I'm looking forward to seeing you in a few years. And he goes, hold on a minute. He said, what's your name, kid? And he took a piece of paper and he wrote my name down. Right? And after I got the pinch hit, I walk into the locker room and on my chair is a bottle of champagne and a note. And it said, congratulations, kid. You said you were going to make it. Now, really what the crazy thing is, George Steinbrenner was at the time suspended from baseball. He wasn't even in the stadium, but he was sitting with my agent. Wow. And, and he was watching the game with my agent. And that's how he got the bottle of champagne delivered to me. That that's, in, that's insane. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I'm going to say, and you hear this all the time, and I hate being cliche when I do some interviews with people who have these iconic moments. Alfonso, Alfonso Soriano's home run against Schilling and your home run in 95, I think are the two most overlooked, you know, Soriano's was, was a double, hits in Yankee history. That's my opinion. 15-inning game, you caught all 15 innings, which everyone always forgets about with that uh, dramatic home run against the Mariners. Donnie Baseball's last game, he was sitting next to you in the locker room. 
Did you appreciate the moment when it happened or not yet? Yeah, I mean, listen, when 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 we had won that second game, we thought there was no way we're not coming back. We didn't think we could lose three straight. I mean, we knew Randy Johnson was going to be tough the next night, mm-hmm. but we were like, okay, we'll give him one, but we'll, we'll end up winning one of the other two. Uh, we never expected to lose. Um, and that was really heart-wrenching. And it was kind of a learning lesson for me because I thought I could not have a better moment mm-hmm. than that 95 walk-off in Yankee Stadium. And then, of course, 96 happens. Everyone and, has a – yeah. Go ahead. No, so everyone has a 96 story, so I'll tell you mine. 96, Cal Ripken grounds out, and you guys win the pennant. And we're in Queens at my aunt's house, and my dad's like, I'm going to go sleep outside for tickets. So my dad sleeps outside for two nights, doesn't get tickets, comes home. I'm 15 years old. I'm, like, crying. He's like, listen, I, I tried. I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. So he worked for the Transit Authority at the time, and he's watching TV, Jim, and it says Yankee Stadium, Yankee World Series tickets still on sale. My dad call out, calls out of work, drives back to the stadium, sleeps over again. Comes home. He's like, I got tickets for game six. And game six is ironically on your birthday. Now, you guys get smoked the first two games. You win game three. And I'm like, all right, you know, let's see. And you guys are down six nothing. And, I, you know, it's funny. I'm a huge sports fan. You remember where you are literally at certain moments in life. Like they always say, when man walked on the moon, when JFK was assassinated, 9-11, I compare mine to sports. I remember sitting next to my dad. And when was the last time you watched the thing? Because I've watched it a thousand times already. And Tim McCarver says, Wallers is going to the breaking ball too much. If you get beat, you don't want to get beat on your third best pitch. And then the next pitch, I get chills when, you know, uh, Wallers back at the track, at the wall. You hear the bang. We are tied. Now that, again, you guys have to win that game. Because people forget that didn't that tied the game up. Right, right. In, in your mind, though, were you thinking, okay, we win this, we win the series? Well, so what had happened was we, when we were down two games to none and we were flying to Atlanta, Joe Torrey got wind of an article in the paper that the Atlanta Braves were so happy they swept the first two games in New York so they don't have to go back and they can win it on their home field. And Joe Torrey used that as motivation for us. He told us about it before game three. And then we won game three, right? And we're like, okay. And he said, before game four, guys, if we win this game and we can get them back to New York, they don't want to go. If we can win this, we got them easy because they don't want to go back to New York. And that's what made that game four so important for us to win. But like you mentioned, when I hit the home run, all I could think about was if we don't win, it's going to be a footnote like 95. Oh. And I can't have that again. You know, and sure enough, we win that game. We go on. I take more pride in catching game five. Which, which, with yes, John Smoltz said that's yeah. the greatest game he's ever pitched. In his life. And you caught, for me, that was the best game I've ever seen in my life. The one nothing yeah. Pettit game. What do you remember catching that game? You're on cloud nine from the home run. And was that just a, a pitching, that's a pitching matchup dream. Well, here's the thing a lot of people don't know. Joe Torrey has told this story before. He wasn't going to catch me. He was really upset from game one that he thought Andy was a freak. Because the whole joke of the whole year when I caught Andy Pettit is he never shook. Right? And I would always joke with him going, Andy, just shake your head, you know, just so people think you're thinking out there. But he had so much trust in me of what my pitch calling was because that was one of my strong points, that he 
he has so much confidence in all four of his pitches that whatever I put down, he would throw. And so Joe was worried that he wouldn't, you know, we didn't have a very good game plan in game one. So he called me in the office after game four, and he told me I wasn't going to catch. And I let Andy Pettit know it. And Andy went in and said something. And then I got called back in, and Joe said, okay, I'm going to catch you, but, you know, try to go by the game plan. Wow. And so for me, and the way the way Joe says to me is, Jimmy, anytime I challenged you, you always rise to the occasion. So that's what I did. I was challenging you. <laughs> and we had a strange way of doing it. <laughs> but but that was it. He, he you know he had said to me wow. later on, he said, when I challenge you, you seem to rise to the occasion. He said, So that's what I was doing. I was challenging you. And sure enough, we had that one that one nothing game. And then of course go home to win game six and uh but really what's so important about those two teams, the 96 team particularly, is that in 97 when they lost, Gene Michael was George's right-hand guy in 97. Mm-hmm. And he went into Gene after they lost when Mariano Rivera gave up the home run to Sandy Alomar in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And he walked into Gene Michael's office and said, get rid of Joe Torre, get rid of Mariano Rivera. I'm done. We're starting over. And G. Michael said, oh, George, George, hold on a sec. Did you forget that we won last year? And George said, okay, I'll give him one more year. Wow. Wow. Now, can you imagine if we don't win in 96? It's going to lose it like up. In, there's no Mariano. There's no Joe Torre. There's no Dynasty. There's no Joe Torre Day, Mariano Rivera Day. Derek Jeter Day and much less because that core of that team is gone. You know, and the other irony is if Tony Fernandez yeah. doesn't break his hand two weeks before spring training, the 1996 Derek Jeter show doesn't start either. Uh, you guys won the World Series on my birthday. How did you celebrate winning that championship? What did you guys do? Did you guys go out as a team? Did you go out by yourself? How did that work? And we went to the plaza. <laughs> we, had, we had a huge, huge party at the plaza. I remember Tino Martinez's dad saying, we're, we're well over a $100,000 bill here. It was, it, we had a really, really, everybody turned out. I remember we left around six in the morning. And I remember hearing a story the next day that Paul O'Neill and Tino went to um, Rockefeller Center and made them open the ice skating rink <laughs> so they could ice skate at six o'clock in the morning. Uh, yeah, but we, yeah, we all went to the plaza and celebrated. I got to ask you this non-Yankee stuff. 97, you get traded. Does that just crush you being, like, leaving no. the team? No, because that was the team that drafted you. Why not? So what happened was I was down in spring training um, in the offseason because I lived in Tampa mm-hmm. at that time. And I used to work out at the complex, in the minor league complex, in the offseason. And it was, like, the first week of January. And I was getting rumblings that they were going to re-sign Girardi and that Posada was going to you know, get called up too. So I, my agents went to George. I told you my agent was very good friends with George. Mm-hmm. And we got on a phone call with George and my agent said to George, can you please, if Jimmy's not going to get more than 270 at-bats again, give him an opportunity to go play every day? And Mr. Steinman said to my agent, Tom Rich, he said, Tom, if you can find him somewhere to play every day, I'll let him go. Oh, so you were okay with it. You, okay, okay. That makes yeah. it a lot different. So I, I asked for the trade. So here's where George Steinbrenner, again, is unlike anybody else. 
I'm on the field in the minor league complex working out with Jeter, Wade Boggs, all these other guys. And all of a sudden, I get called off the field. I get a phone call. I come in. My agent says, hey, great news. Not only did we get you traded, but we got you a three-year deal. My first three-year deal for $5.4 million. Now, at the time, that was pretty good money. Oh, yeah. Right? And so they said, um, the Anaheim Angels want you to come and be their everyday catcher. And I was like, this is unbelievable. You know, and I, I was so excited. So I packed up all my gear and I walked into Mr. Steinbrenner's office in Tampa. Saying, you know, boss, I appreciate everything here. Thank you so much. You know, I appreciate it. Let me go. Um, and, and you will always have a place in my heart. And he looked at me, he goes, what are you doing with your bag? I said, well, I'm not a Yankee anymore. I can't work out here. He said, Jimmy, go unpack your bag. You will always be a Yankee. I love that man. Yeah. And he said, only two players can work out here after you left this 9016, and that's you and Wade Boggs. Because <laughs> Boggs left after 96, too. And uh, so we worked out there. And yeah, Mr. Steinbrenner was great. And so I started my career, which I thought was going to be three years in Anaheim, as the starting catcher. And then a bunch of things happened in Anaheim where Todd Green was their up-and-coming you know, catcher who they thought was going to be the next Carlton Fisk. And um, then they had Horace Fabregas, and they had me. But then we during the season, we were in first place or game out of first place, and we had just lost Mark Langston and Chuck Finley in the same week. And we needed starting pitching. And so they went to Texas, and they found out that Pudge was not going to re-sign Okay, that was, this is my next question. You went from Angels, Rangers to Red Sox and Padres in two years. Okay, yeah. I'm glad you filled so, in the blanks. Yeah, so so we're in Cleveland playing with the Angels. I come back from lunch with my parents, and I got 52 people going to the game because I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And I walk into my room, and I get a phone call, and it's Tim Mead from the Angels. And he says, Jimmy, he said, um, you haven't left for the ballpark yet, right? I go, no. You're calling me on the hotel phone. <laughs> and he said, um, I just want to let you know you got traded. I said, what? I said, what are you talking about, Tim? I said, this is my first day of being an everyday player. I don't want to get traded. He said, well, no, you're, you got traded to Texas. He said, well, it's, it's a part of a three-team trade. You're going to Texas for Kenny Hill. And then the Rangers are making another trade for Pudge Rodriguez to the New York Yankees for Jorge Posada. And it was, um, God, I can't remember the kid's name. It was a starting pitcher, Jansen. Some kid named Jansen. Marty Jansen. Okay. And that, he was an, a, a young rookie kid for them, for the Yankees. So him and Posada were coming to Texas to join me on July 30th. I hear this news. I get traded. On July 30th, the Texas plane lands in Arlington, uh, coming from the road, and Pudge Rodriguez finds out that I've been traded to become the starting catcher for the Texas Rangers. He walks into the office the next morning to, I can't remember the name of the owner, but the owner of the Texas Rangers, Tom Warner, I think it was, and they work out a deal for Pudge, because Pudge doesn't want to go to New York, and they, they end up, Pudge resigns. 
Now, get, don't get me wrong. I'm on a plane headed to Texas thinking I'm the third and catcher in Texas. And I get off the plane, and the clubhouse kid picks me up, and he says, hey, did you hear the great news? I said, no, what's that? He said, Pudge Rodriguez just signed for five years. I go, That's horrible for me. <laughs> I go, I go the New York Yankees? He goes, nope, the Texas Rangers. Oh my God. I said, you've got to be kidding me. So I show up in Arlington, and Johnny Oates was our, our manager. Mm-hmm. And I walk in the office, and Johnny just puts his head down and shakes it. I go, what? He goes, Jimmy, I am so sorry, but they just used the crap out of you. Wow. He said, "Wow." He said, as soon as Pudge found out you were coming here, he, he resigned. And he said, I don't know what to tell you, but he goes, I'm going to play at first base. I'm going to DH you, but you're not going to be catching much with Pudge here. And I said, Johnny, listen, I, I'm not killing the messenger. You know, I, I get it. I said, I'll play my timeout, but I'm going to ask for a trade in the offseason. And sure enough, but I ended up hurting my knee. The last, like, March, mm-hmm. I think it was September 17th, uh, playing in a game. With the, I got taken out of the plate, catching with the Rangers, and I ended up tearing some meniscus. So I went home early to get it cleaned up so I would be ready for spring training. And in that offseason, me and Damon Buford got traded for Aaron Seeley, Bill Hasselman, and somebody else. Uh, and so we get traded to the Red Sox. So I get to the Red Sox. And now I'm supposed to be the starting catcher there. Yeah. Joe Kerrigan is the pitching coach. And in our first meeting, he sits there and he tells me that I'm gonna he's gonna call every pitch for the pitchers. And I'm like, you mean like in practice? He says, no, in the games. I was like, Joe, um, I'm just I, I it's been in this league seven years. I, I'm, you're not going to, this is not college. You're not calling my bitches. I go, first of all, you got Pedro Martinez, Brett Saberhagen, yeah. and Tip Wakefield. How in the hell are you going to call their bitches? <laughs> I go, now you have Derek Lowe and John Watson, who were rookies. Okay. But I go, you know, you and I, we meet before the game. How about you just, if there's a certain pitch you want, you just whistle from the dugout and I'll call it. And he goes, no, I'm calling every pitch. Whoa. And I walked into Jimmy Williams' office because Jimmy was the manager. And I said, Jimmy, are you are you okay with this? And Jimmy's like, you know what? I'm going to do whatever whatever he says. He's, 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 he's been here longer than me. And I was like, now here's the worst part. It was Jason Veritek's first year. So Jason was willing to listen to anything Joe Kerrigan was going to say. Young guy, yes coach, yes yeah. coach. And then the worst thing for me that happened two weeks later is I had some personal issues with my ex-wife, which is my wife at the time, but I had some personal issues that I had to go home and take care about. And it was supposed to be four days. It turned into 10 days. And by the time I got back, Veritek was going to become the starting catcher wow. because he was going to listen to to, to, to uh, Joe Kerrigan and let Joe call, call every pitch. So now I get relegated to DH duties. And so I'm the right-handed bat off the, off the DH, and Reggie Jefferson is the left-handed. And I get off to a pretty good start. I've got 129 at-bats. I've got eight home runs, 29 RBIs. But we're in the middle of June, and I have 129 at-bats. And I am pissed off. Yeah. And I walked into Jimmy Williams' office, and I said, you need to call Dan Duquette. 
I want out of here. I'm in the middle of a multi-year deal. I can ask for a trade. And the craziness was they tried to get me not to ask for a trade. They made up some stories about my ex-wife selling drugs, that they were going to use it against me and all these other things. And long story short, I proved it all wrong. And they finally made the trade to get rid of me, to send me to San Diego, because Greg Myers had just broke his hand. They needed a right-handed bat off the bench, backup catcher. I fit the mold perfectly. And most of all, they wanted to get me for the postseason because they felt like they were going to make the postseason. Which which they did. They made that awesome run. I got it because yep. I read you had it 52 minutes. I feel bad. But two questions about the 98 team. One, you played with Gwynn. And two years earlier, you played with Boggs. Watching them hit, was that just like watching artistry, watching those two guys hit? Well, you know, I was very blessed to play three years. I mean, I'm sorry, three different players. I put Don Mattingly in that category, too. Okay, okay. Yeah. Don Mattingly, Wade Boggs, and Tony Gwynn, I was in their hitting groups. And I learned so much. You didn't learn much from Tony Gwynn because he was just such a natural hitter. Yeah. But he knew how to set up pitchers. He knew how to work the count. He knew just, you know, how to just look for spots that were open. He was unbelievable. Wade Boggs was the most disciplined hitter I have ever seen because he had more power than Mark McGuire. But yet he was willing to hit that line drive over the shortstop's head because he wanted to hit 350. And then, of course, Donnie was the hardest working who made himself into a great hitter just because he worked so hard. Um, he reminded me of somebody I saw as a kid, Pete Rose, uh, who worked so hard at hitting also. those. But being able to play with those three guys was such a gift back in those days. Did you ever let any of those legends know that you were also a batting crown champion in the minor leagues? Did you ever give them any hitting tips? I was not going to even approach that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jim, there's always an urban legend that um, you hear sometimes. Michael Kay has said it a few times that the 98 World Series, the Yankees knew that they were going to win. And I don't know if this is true because a lot of the Ken Caminiti and guys were taking pitches in Monument Park of, and they were like in awe. Is that true? Like before well, game after one? T after Tino hit the home run and when they won game one, there was a little bit of feeling, I thought, in our locker room, like these guys are destined to win this. Okay. And I think when, and, you know, if, if, we still think there's a conspiracy theory going on here because both Kevin Brown and Andy Ashby got food poisoning. <laughs> it's like the Jordan flu and, game. <laughs> yeah, and we still fear that staying at the Grand Hyatt, that somebody that gave them their room service planted some stuff in there that were they were Yankee fans. And both of these pitchers had food poisoning the day before they're supposed to pitch. <laughs> One more baseball question. Yankees, the Yankee franchise is known for old timers. They, when you're there, was there any player that you're like, holy shit, that is blank, and you it just stopped doing your tracks? Well, unfortunately, I, I'm not invited to old timers. No, 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 when you were a player, but, when you were a player, and you saw somebody. Yes. So, so what I'll tell you is a great story. I was invited between 2004 and 2007, and I remember in 2006. My first, my first one, standing there, we get introduced, and I was the last current player introduced. Mm -hmm. And I got to stand right at home plate, and Jim Abbott was right next to me. And then they introduced all of the greats. And what ended up next to me was Yogi Berra, Phil Rizzuto, Whitey Ford, Reggie Jackson. I mean, it was the who's who's of the Yankees. And I remember Jim Abbott looking at me going, dude, what are we doing here? <laughs> and I, I'll never forget this. 
we get to the point where it's the memorial, where in memoriam, in memory of, uh-huh. and they play all the people that have passed away from the year before. And I remember, and this is typical Yogi, I remember hearing Yogi look at Whitey Ford and go, I hope I never see my name up there. And there was a dead silence between between Yogi Whitey and Phil Rizzuto. And Rizzuto goes, Yogi, you'll never see your name. Those people are dead. <laughs> and Yogi's like, is that what in memoriam means? <laughs> that is awesome. So yeah, that's that's a good story. Hey, off the field, you're known for your charity works, ALS, 9-11, Pink Tie. Where did that come about? Because when you look up Jim Lairich, it just comes up charity, charity, charity. Where did that uh, sense of giving back come back from? Well, it came from George Steinbrenner. I mean, first of all, it came oh. from my mom and dad. Okay. It came from my mother and father about, you know, if, if, you're ever, if God ever blesses you and you don't use what God gives you to help others, then your talent is completely wasted. Um, having a platform that we get as major league ball players. Mr. Steinbrenner really drilled it into our heads that this is not about you. It's about, you know, what you what you can do to change other people's lives. George Steinbrenner was the kind of guy that when I wasn't in the lineup, he'd be on the field during batting practice and he'd say, hey, Lairitz, you in the lineup today? I said, no, Mr. Steinbrenner, I'm, I'm, I'm not. He goes, then skip batting practice, go down the right field line and start signing some autographs for your friends. Wow. Wow. And I remember. Yeah, and I remember being with him one time and asking him about charities. And he, he said to me, Jimmy, if more than one person has to know why you're doing something, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And that really stuck with me. And then in 1996, I, I was able to sponsor a lot of kids in the foster care system to come to games with me and my family. And two of the little boys got adopted into a family. The, the craziness of the story is, the day they got adopted was the morning of the night that I hit my home run in 1996. And the woman that wrote the article that got me to take these boys to the game, she called me up the next day and said, listen, I'm not here to talk about your home run. I'm here to let you know that during that day, those two little boys got adopted into a family and you were blessed by God to have the moment that you did. And I really thanked her because she really put my home run because I was on cloud nine. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, you're not gonna, you can't get any better than this. And then the reality hit of these two little boys now had someone they were going to wake up to. They have a family now. Wow. It, the impact that had on me is one of the reasons why I never try to miss a moment. And don't get me wrong. There's times I'm sure people have met me that I'm busy doing something that I might ignore them. And I apologize for that. But 99% of the time, if I have an opportunity with a little kid, just like I told you about the catcher's mitt with Johnny Bench, I will not miss that opportunity to make sure I take some time for a kid, for a charity, for a foundation, because God has blessed me with everything he's given me. And, and you know, it's not only children, because I told you I'm very good friends with Craig Carton, and I remember all the stuff he went through. People just abandoned him, and I remember one of his first shows, you called up, you you know, you, he was like, oh my God, and it was so... It was awesome to see because a lot of players and stuff abandoned him. And you just called up like, no, Craig, you're my guy. I don't really care what happened. You're my guy. Like that was, I remember that. I'm like, this guy, Larry, just forget about the baseball thing. That's awesome because so many people turned their back on him. So that was sick when I remember when you called into the show. Yeah, you know, it, it, when I met, when Craig was going through all that after what I had went through. Exactly. I, had re I reached out to him and I told him about the book, a book called The Purpose Driven Life that 
really changed my life. But I said, even more importantly, Craig, it's what got me through my trial. When I went through three years of DUI manslaughter trial that I wouldn't take a plea and it was going to be hell what I went through, but I, I wasn't going to accept less than what I did wrong that night. And that was drink and drive. And I said to Craig, this book gave me the strength to see it to the end. And it worked out. Craig, read this book. And I, you know, he told me that that book really helped him get through that moment. So when everything he went through after he got out, he had caught with him and I met. I'm now still great friends with him. I go to his Craig Cart nights and everything else. Um, but just to know that, again, giving somebody a book that helped me, sharing that pain, even though it was painful what I went through, sharing that pain with him helped him get through his, how could we not as human beings continue to share that? Every time I get a moment that somebody tells me they're struggling, tell me that they're, they're harming, I, re, I recommend that book to people. And 95% of the time, I'll get a phone call back saying, thank you for that book because it changed my life. I don't want to get into your stuff you went into, but you were railroaded. In my opinion, you were railroaded. And yeah. I remember the yeah. narrative in the media was like, Larry's did this. But then when you did one iota of research, you're like, well, listen, you know, like you said, you were drinking, but you didn't do anything else. You didn't cause that. And yet the media, like, it's forgotten. How do you cope with that? Like knowing that the, I, I, it's hard to say the lies are out there. If you do one second of research besides reading the headline and you watch your stuff about you, like, oh, wow, he, he cleared his name. You fought for that emotionally draining, mentally. I don't know how you did that. That was inspirational that you're like, listen, I'm taking nothing. I'm fighting this. Like that was so inspirational, man. So in, in 2009, going into 2010, I met my, I, I met my, I, I, in, in opening day of 2009, I met my current wife in New York after the Yankee, after the Yankees opening day of the new stadium. Okay. I met her. And one of the reasons we connected was I told her my whole story the very first night I met her about what I was going through because, you know, she had heard, you know, after an hour and a half of speaking to me, she realized I was somebody that she had heard of before. She didn't know before then. And when I told her what I was going through, she said, how do you get through all that? You know, you seem like a normal person. And I said to her, I read this book called The Purpose Driven Life. And she looked at me and she said, oh, my God. I'm from California. That's the pastor of my church. I go to his church, Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life. So not only did I meet her through that, in 2009, going into 2010, I went out to California to go meet Rick Warren and go to Saddleback Church with her because we had started dating long distance. And I went to go see Rick Warren, who wasn't preaching that day because he had given all the Christmas uh, services and he took the week off. But what happened was Rick Warren asked the congregation between Christmas and New Year's for $200,000 to all these programs he wanted to implement into the church. And he wound up getting $2.4 million. So my girlfriend and I, at the time, she was my girlfriend, we went to church, not expecting to see Rick Warren, but I wanted to see Saddleback. And we go to the church and we're sitting there and during the service, the pastor of the church talked about thanking the congregation for the $2.4 million. And he wants, he has someone that wants to thank them. And off, all of a sudden on stage, 
Rick Warren walks. And I grabbed my girlfriend, Michelle, now my wife, at the time, and I said, honey, I'm going to meet him. And she said, it's not that easy. I said, what do you mean? She said, he's got security. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a pretty big pastor. I said, who do you know? She knows I know the guy on stage in the choir. I said, okay, as soon as the service is over, we're going up to that guy. And so as soon as the service was over, I ran to the stage. The guy's name was Rick Munchow. He just passed a couple years ago uh, from cancer, but from brain tumor. And I went up to him and I said, excuse me, sir, sir. My name is Jim Laritz. I used to play for the Yankees. And I came here today to meet Rick Warren. And he goes, you didn't play for the Yankees. I said, what? He said, you played for my angels. He goes, I'm an angel fan. I oh, you so knew excited. you were in. Exactly. So he goes, I was so excited when you came to play for us. And then so disappointed when you got traded. He said, what can I do for you? And I told him what I was going through. And he said, you know what? I remember seeing that. And then he looked over my shoulder. He goes, is that your girlfriend? I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, he goes, I can't believe it. She's in my one-on-one class and she's been praying for you. She never told me your name. She goes, I can't believe it's you. She said, let's go. You're going to go meet Rick Warren. So we went backstage to go meet Rick Warren. We're sitting in the green room. He comes walking in. I explained to him what I'm going through, that the state is making up all these lies, that she's running to become a judge and she's using my name. And we know all these things. And, you know, I just, I'm struggling. And he grabbed me and he grabbed my girlfriend. He put his hands on our shoulders and he said, let the jury be just. Let them see through the smoke and mirrors of what the state is trying to do. But most of all, give Jimmy the strength to see it to the end. Now, dude, you're talking about impactful. Now, this was January of 2010. I didn't go to trial till November. All right. There were so many things that happened between January and November that all of the evidence three months before trial of the other driver being drunk. Mm -hmm. cocaine, divorce papers on her front seat. She was out celebrating her divorce with her boyfriend. All these crazy things that we were not allowed to, to put into the courts were not going to be told. And my attorney came to me and said, Jimmy, you may want to consider a plea. He said, I, can, I think I can get you 10 years probation, five years no license, a felony on your record, but no jail time. And you could be home with you, raise your kids. And you know, listen, I was facing 15 years. Yeah. And I said, David, I'm sorry. But I spoke to my girlfriend last night and she reminded me of a prayer that Rick Warren said over me to see it to the end. We're going to see this to the end. And sure enough, we did. And everything didn't work out in the end. Uh, and the jury, the jury knew it was so obvious when one piece of evidence got let back in. Mm -hmm. that I didn't cause this accident, that even though I was guilty of drinking and driving, I did not cause the accident. Um, but it took three years and 17 days of a trial for that to come to light because one bad apple, the state attorney in the system, was trying to use my name to pr promote her career. Um, that was the sad part about the whole thing. And, you know, again, for my family, for the family, other family that lost somebody, for, we just didn't have time to move on. We were finally able to move on once the court thing was over. But the other thing that was crazy during those three months is that, like you said, the court of public opinion was still gonna convict me oh. because the media 
was not going to cover all this other stuff. No, of course not. And I did a piece for E60. Yes, I with remember that. That was intense. Yeah, that that was before my trial. And even Jeremy Schaap, who was a good a friend of mine who I worked with at ESPN, he even said to me, Jimmy, your your attorney's not going to let you do mm -hmm. an interview before your trial. I was like, well, he don't have a choice. Yeah. And sure enough, Jeremy called him up and he called me. My agent, my attorney called me and said, Jimmy, you can't do this. I go, David, I'm doing it no matter what. He said, well, if you do it, I'm going to quit. I go, well, then you're probably going to quit because I'm doing it. And sure enough, doing that piece for E60 really shed light on really all of the evidence, which to this day, I still don't understand why factual evidence I know. was omitted. I mean, this, this driver was in a, in a DUI accident six months prior yep, right before. to our accident. And there was documentation from a fire department, from a hospital, but we were not allowed to use that as evidence. To this day, I still don't understand how- It's mind-boggling, mind-boggling. Yeah. So anyway, long story short, we got through it. Um, God was on my side, watching over me. As soon as the trial was over with, the judge called me in and said, Mr. Lairitz, we are so sorry. This should have never went to trial. And that, where do you want to go? You got a one-year probation but you don't need to stay in the neighborhood you're in now because the state attorney lives there. Yeah, and you need, and get you need the hell to get out. out. <laughs> so that's when I decided to go to California. So, Are you ready to finish up this podcast with a few quick hit questions? Yes, sir, let's do it. You and I are at a bar here in New York City. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? In my phone? Yeah, you want to impress people at the bar. Oh, uh, well, it depends. Well, that's a good question. I got a pretty good Rolodex. Um, <laughs> I would say, depending on the bar and the crowd, Donald Trump would be one. Great answer. I think a lot of people would like that. I think a, a, a great portion of my friends would be Rick Warren, my pastor of my church. Um, and then uh, from the baseball side of things, I think probably uh, it would be a tough one. If it's a Yankee fan, I would say Derek Jeter. If it's a baseball fan, I would say Ken Griffey Jr. All right. Th those, that, those were incredible answers. How about this? One sporting event in history you could have witnessed live? Um, probably the Miracle on Ice. That's a great answer. I get that a couple times. That's a really good answer. How about coolest piece of memorabilia that you own? Oh, that was before the trial. <laughs> I had to get rid of a lot of stuff to be able to get through that trial. Uh, probably the greatest piece that I still own to this day um, is a jersey from Pete Rose, my idol uh, that I got. That, yeah, that was that's probably one of my. You know, and again, everybody has one, but it meant something to me because Pete was my idol growing up. I saw on uh, your Instagram, you at Ray, uh, Rayo's. Uh, now you're just showing off. What's your favorite uh, meal there? Or favorite food there? Well, we're really good friends with the Trevini. The Trevini <laughs> and Lori Trevini is the daughter of Ron Stracy, who runs Rayo's now. That the Pellegrinos are no longer there. Mm -hmm. And Ron is a good friend of mine. Her husband, Vincent, and his daughter, Lori, are really good friends with my wife and I. And she makes the meatballs. So... If I don't, I know Dino, the, the chef, would kill me 
for saying the meatballs because he's he wants me to say his chicken. But his chicken and Lori's meatballs are my favorite at Rayo's. You uh you broke the Giancarlo Stanton news, which was sick. As a Yankee yeah. fan, would do a Yankee fan wants uh you to break the news that the Yankees trade for Soto or they trade for Otani? Oof. I would go Otani because Soto hasn't done anything to help San Diego. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to go there and kind of bring real Machado in and be the leader of that team. Uh, it doesn't look too good right now. Um, again, either one of them is going to be fine because it's left-handed bat in Yankee Stadium. <laughs> but I think Otani would have a bit bigger impact than Juan Soto. One player right now playing that Jim Laritz would pay to watch play baseball. Well, I, I the good thing is I don't have to pay to watch <laughs> the two that I like right now, and that's Pete Alonzo and Aaron Judge. Um, those are my, my two favorite. Aaron Judge, to me, um, is, is kind of like watching, if you're a basketball fan, LeBron James or Michael Jordan play basketball. You know, talent-wise, this guy – at the size that he plays the game and the agility that he plays with it is something that is not normal. Mm-hmm. And maybe not Michael Jordan as much as it is LeBron yeah. because LeBron's a lot bigger than Michael. But the, the size of these guys and the athletic ability that they play with, to me, is something that I admire more than anything else. How about this one? It's, it's a, maybe a mean question, but one play you thought was going to be special – but for one reason or another, it didn't pan out. You thought, like, oh, this guy's going to be a star. Well, I mean, I, I think the guy that I got traded for from Anaheim, Todd Green. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a good answer. Yeah, I think that was the one that, you know, that they thought was going to be the next coming. And, you know, he, I think he ended up playing five or six years, but not, not turning out to what they thought he was going to be. And now finish up now because you're on 970 AM. You're all over the radio, sports agent. What do you do now, Jim Laritz? What are you doing right now? Because you're everywhere, by the way. Yeah, listen, in these trying times, <laughs> I try to stay as diversified as I can. I, I work for a title insurance company called Amtrust Title. I'm a spokesperson for an IT company called Atlantic Tomorrow's Office, if anybody needs IT work. Um, I just got my baseball agent's license for a company called North Star Sports. Um, I do appearances at Yankee Stadium. I do a lot of public speaking both colleges and corporate and to churches. Uh, you can go on my website, jimlayritz.com, and you can see everything that I'm out there doing, charity-wise, foundations. Um, this next week, coming up this next week, I've got seven outings in eight days of different charity events. Joe Torrey, uh, you know, a member guest with a good friend of mine. So as much as I can do uh, to be able to, play in tournaments to be able to play in charity events to give back to help them raise more money is what I do my pretty much my entire summer. Jim Laritz, I gotta say thank you for doing this first of all. Uh this is gonna sound corny. Thank you for hitting those home runs. Thank you for making the bond between me and my father so strong. If he was alive now he'd be bugging out. When I interviewed Mo, he'd be bugging out that I'm talking to Jim Laritz about that. The man who hit the last home run of the century. Thank you for doing the podcast and also not just giving, oh, yeah, it was cool getting the call. Like, you went in-depth with so many stories, bro. And as a fan of you, a fan of baseball, and a fan of everything you do, it was just sick just to watch it, man. So this was an absolute blast. And um, behind me are all jerseys and all different ticket stubs. Everyone who comes on the show signs something. I'll send you a couple of things from my profession okay. that you'll, you'll enjoy. 
and you tag something up for me, we'll figure it out. But, bro, this was a blast, man. Thank you so much, man. And God bless, Jim Laird's. All right, man. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon, my friend. All right. We'll see you. Bye-bye.